Happy Mother's Day. We are in week three of a short series we've been doing called Consumed, the Endless Demands of the Monsters We Worship. So we've got monsters on Mother's Day for you guys. You're welcome for that. And um, I really want to encourage you, if you are just coming today and you missed the first two weeks of the series, these are absolutely worth going back and watching and listening to. There's stuff we can't possibly cover in a short recap right now and and stuff that I think is absolutely pivotal for the Christian life. So I, I commend those videos and podcasts to you if you have not yet heard them. Today, we're going to be looking at power. We've talked so far about money. Next week, we're going to conclude by talking about sex. And today, we're going to talk about power. Before we do, I want to give just a a brief kind of like reflection on what this series is about. We've looked every week at the kind of universal human tendency, the universal human belief throughout all of human history up until the present day and even in the present day in much of the world. It's universal belief that the world has a spiritual component as well as a physical component. That there is a spiritual world that is real and that is populated by real spiritual beings who have an actual influence on the world that we live in. And most human beings, for most of human history, have believed that you could get things that you need, you get influence that you need from that spiritual world and from those spiritual beings by making sacrifices to them, by giving them the kind of things they ask for and by showing your devotion and love to them through sacrifice. Now that, for us as kind of modern Western people, can sound really bizarre and like something that we don't necessarily have any way of connecting to. I mean, in the post-Enlightenment Western world, we're not really big on, oh, thank you. That was like a ninja. I, didn't, I heard a sound and then there was communion on the table. <laughs> it's amazing. So we don't necessarily intuitively connect to that idea, but the point we've been making throughout the series is that whether or not we acknowledge the spiritual reality at work behind the scenes, Our world is just as much making sacrifices to the very same powers and principalities. And so what can be really helpful for us to kind of like connect to this idea of idolatry and the worship of false gods is Tim Keller's definition of an idol. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And you can see already that even without acknowledging that there might be a spiritual reality at work behind the scenes, this absolutely defines many things in our lives. It is that which gives your life meaning and purpose, the thing that your life is centered around, the thing, as Keller says, that if you lost it, you would feel hopeless. You would feel like your life was hardly even worth living anymore. There are sacrifices that have to be made to these false gods. And in our culture, we make many of the same ones that were made throughout history. The cost is always very, very high. And what's interesting about this definition, too, is that that can certainly be a negative thing that becomes central to your life or an evil thing that becomes central to your life. But most often, the thing that becomes that centerpiece is something good, something that should be a gift from God, something you should enjoy, things like your family, your children, your marriage, your job, or your hobbies. They're things that are meant to be good. The problem is we do what Keller says, and we make them more important to us than God. We place them at the top of the hierarchy where only God belongs. And when you place one of those lesser loves or lesser values at the top, in the place that only God should hold, it causes disaster and devastation 
in your life and the lives of those close to you. Now, my favorite articulation of the kind of danger of magnifying lesser things to the position of God actually comes from a thinker who wasn't even a Christian. It's a guy named David Foster Wallace. He was a, a postmodern author. He was very famous in the ni- late 90s and early 2000s. He wrote some very influential books. He's kind of famous for being esoteric and kind of weird and hard to understand. But in 2003 or 2005, he gave a commencement address at Kenyon College, Liberal Arts University. And was, in this commencement address, he was incredibly, unusually clear and straightforward for him. He said a number of things that were really impactful and really powerful. My favorite of them is this. It's directly from that speech. The speech is called This is Water. It's kind of a long quote. This is just half of it, but it's worth hearing in its entirety. He says, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Then he gives examples. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Happy Mother's Day, everybody, by the way. (laughs) Jeez. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. It's incredibly insightful. It's a man who had no religious affiliation whatsoever, not a Christian. And he said, listen, if you try to put anything other than a God or some spiritual type thing at the top, it will eat you alive. Now, the tragic thing about this quote is that three years after giving this speech, David Foster Wallace took his own life. So he was right He was wise enough to see the problem, but he didn't go deep enough. He didn't go far enough. So he said, you got to make sure you put some kind of spiritual type thing at the top of the hierarchy. But as we've been saying throughout this entire series, there are plenty of spiritual type things that are only too happy to take that position and take your adoration and take your worship. And guess what? They will eat you alive too. David Foster Wallace is a tragic example of that. And so today we're going to look, like I said, at the second to last thing he talked about there, power. And for many of us, when you find out we're talking about power instead of money or sex, you're like, okay, good. Power's like the one that I don't have to feel weird about because I know that power is not my issue. Like I'm not the power hungry person who's like out there trying to like crush everyone in my path in order to achieve what I want. The problem is that's a very limited, very childish definition of what power actually is. If you understand power as the desire to to control. It's the desire to have control and influence over those in your life, those people or those things in your life that you wish to have control over. If you understand power that way, then you'll recognize right away, power does not have to look like the obvious examples of the power hungry to become dysfunctional and unhealthy and unrighteous. I mean, there's absolutely things in all of our lives that it's right for us to desire to have influence over and desire to have control over, But there's also tons and tons of stuff, and we all know it, 
that we desire more control and more influence than we should have. And we're willing to do and say things that we shouldn't do and say, or things that aren't true, in order to try to get that power and that influence. And that can look like the obvious example of like, the, you know, the power-hungry CEO who's like willing to just crush anyone in his path to get the power that he wants. Or the giant corporation or giant government that's willing to commit human atrocities in order to maintain and hold on to power. But it can also look like a very quiet, very subtle type of power-seeking and control-seeking. A lot of the time it takes the, the form of emotional manipulation, uses of guilt and shame and embarrassment in order to try to get the people in our lives that we want control over to be under us, to be less than us so we can exert that influence over them that we want. And this happens in relationships of all kinds, parents to children, children to parents, spouses, both directions. Anytime you are in a dysfunctional, unhealthy, unrighteous way, seeking to have control or influence over the people and things in your life, this is what you are worshiping. This is what you're seeking after. And I'm honestly convinced that when you define it that way, every single person, period, struggles with this. The only question is, what do you want power over? And what are you doing to try to get it? It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. Now, the wonderful good news about this is that Jesus is incredibly, incredibly clear when it comes to power. There's a teaching he gives, a really short teaching he gives, that's found in three out of four gospel accounts where he articulates directly how Christians are supposed to understand power compared to the rest of the world. It comes in this story. This is the Mark version from Mark 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I just love the audacity of that, by the way. This could blow right past it. They're like, hey, leader of our group, at the very least. At the very most, it's like, hey, second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. Do whatever we want. I'm not saying they knew that about him yet, so we can give him a little bit of a pass. But at the very least, they're like, hey, boss, do whatever we want. Try that this week. See what happens. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're fishermen from Galilee. They're two of Jesus' 12 disciples, and they have a nickname. Anybody know what their nickname is? The Sons of Thunder, which is a pretty awesome nickname. And we don't know for sure that this is the specific story they got it from, but there's a story told about them that at least reveals the type of personality that led to them being called the Sons of Thunder. The story goes like this. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and on their way, they want to stop by some villages in Samaria. And the Samaritan villages, because they don't like Jerusalem, when they found, find out that Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, they don't receive him. You know, no thanks. And James and John are so offended by this that they ask Jesus, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to burn these villages up? And Jesus says, no. <laughs> says he rebukes them. He says, no, that's, no, come on, guys. But you can see in that moment why these guys get the name Sons of Thunder, right? These are guys who want power. They understand power, they want it, they want to use it. And that's on full display in this story. Because what they're asking Jesus is they're saying, hey, we know that when you've done whatever it is you're doing, you are going to be in a position of prominence and glory and authority. And we would like to be your right and left-hand man. We want to be right next to you and have the kind of delegated authority to, to lead alongside of you. It's Jesus' response. 
Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So Jesus' first response is to say, you guys don't know what you're asking because it's not just glory in front of me. The road to that glory is going to be filled with immense suffering. Are you ready for that? And James and John, to their credit, go, yeah, we're ready. And Jesus goes, well, hey, ready or not, you actually are going to go through that pain and suffering. You are going to share in the cup that I'm going to drink. But nevertheless, I can't give you those seats at my right and left. Those seats are taken. It's a very interesting, mysterious moment because he doesn't say who they're taken by. He just says, I can't give those seats out. Those seats are already spoken for. You guys want to know who's in those seats? I have no idea. (laughs) And when the 10 other disciples hear what they're doing, this is how power works. They hear that their two friends are angling for power on the side without them being involved. And when they hear that that's going on, they get upset just like I would and just like you would. And so Jesus sees in this kind of turmoil and tension the opportunity to teach something. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, them now means all of the disciples, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I am convinced that when the church understands this, it becomes the transformative force on earth that God wants to use it to be, and that it has been for 2,000 years. He says, Gentiles, and when he uses Gentiles, it's really common in the New Testament. Gentiles here is not primarily an ethnic thing. What Jesus is saying is those who are not connected to the one true God. So all the people who don't know the true God, what they do with power is they lord it over each other. They exercise it over each other. He's saying all of human beings, the tendency is what power you get, you seek more, and you use it to push others down, to keep your authority. And I can tell you, In my role here at South Valley, I've been very blessed to get to travel to many different countries all over the world, and I can tell you that every single place I have ever gone, this has been true. Anyone who has any measure of power, from small to great, uses it to try to get more, to try to preserve the power that they have, and to try to hold down the people with less power around them. And that is true at every level. I mean, that's true of like the tyrant in the developing country, and it's true of like the newly appointed crossing guard who loves their whistle a little too much and is like ready to to just tweet right at the next car. You know what I mean? Whatever, you know this, if you're a parent, you know this with your children. Whatever kind of little amount of power and dominion they have, it's like, hold on to it, use it, exert it over the littler siblings. You know what I mean? This is the human tendency. And yet Jesus says, for my people, it's not gonna be like this. And not only is it not going to be like this, it's actually gonna be exactly backwards people of this world take power and they rise themselves up and they push others down. Christians, Jesus says, my people, we take whatever power we have and use it to lower ourselves in order to lift others up. It's exactly backwards. And Christians have for 2,000 years, albeit with mixed results, 
Not perfectly, by any measure, but for 2,000 years, Christians have taken this seriously. They've taken seriously the call to sacrifice, to lower themselves in order to lift others up. They take what Jesus says seriously. He says, no, 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 look at what I do. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the paradigm. Follow that. Christians have over and over, time and time again throughout history, done that. And part of why that is, part of why that, that is so core to the identity of the Christian is because when Jesus says it there in Mark 10, it's not like a brand new innovation that he's introducing. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I got a whole new idea here. We're going to actually value the less powerful. It's actually core to the very fabric of reality itself, and it starts, like many things do, at the very, very beginning of Scripture. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It comes at the very end of the creation account in Genesis 1. So God has already created the heavens and the earth and filled them with plants and animals of all kinds, and it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God, the creator of everything, is at the absolute pinnacle of every conceivable hierarchy. He is the top, period. And then he's created everything else, plants, animals, everything else on earth. But what's amazing and unique about this story is that it says that God places humanity in this unique position of delegated authority over everything else that he's made. Because they bear God's image, they have this vocation to be God's hands and feet and do the kinds of things that God does and care about the kinds of things that God cares about on earth. Really simple way to visualize this that we've used here before at South Valley is to just think of this in terms of three different levels. At level one, you have God, the ultimate creator of everything ruler of everything. And then at level two, you have humanity, made in God's image. And because of that, they have a unique calling and vocation to have this delegated authority over the rest of creation. And they also have this unique, inherent dignity and value that because they're made in God's image, because they're connected to God in this way, they are sons and daughters of God and have this inherent worth and dignity. And then beneath them at level three, you have everything else that God has made. And in the Christian worldview, all of those other things that God has made at level three matter, are valuable, have importance. In fact, a huge part of what humanity is meant to do is care for them well, but they don't rise to the same level of significance and value as humanity in the two spot. The vast majority, if not all, abuses of power in human history involve human beings who occupy that two spot taking other human beings of some category or other and pushing them down to level three, treating them as if they are less than human, and at the same time trying to elevate themselves up to level one to take authority and dominion that is not theirs to have. That's how you get from the micro to the macro, every act of abuse, slavery, racism, genocide, abortion, violence, murder. You take that which is at the level of humanity, level two, inherently valuable and worthy, and you push it down and treat it as if it's just another part of regular creation. Now, Christians, again, especially in light of Jesus' teaching that we are to use our power to serve and to make ourselves lower, have had an incredibly unique high view of the value of all human life, including the kind of vulnerable and weak 
which by the way, that feels very normal to us. We say this here a lot, but it's really important to remember. To value the vulnerable and the weak and the powerless feels very intuitive to us, but that's because we've had 2,000 years of Christian influence in the Western world to make us think that way. The Romans didn't think that the weak were worthy of special care and attention. Neither did the Greeks, and neither did the Persians, and neither did the Babylonians, and neither did the Egyptians. No one thought that. Mostly it's preserve power and rule over the weak because that's actually what's best for them. Jesus says, no, with my people it's different. And that shaped the world we live in today. And so very early on, right after the Bible, you have Christian teachings like this one. This is um, not from Scripture. It's from something called the Didache. Didache is just the Greek word for teaching. And the Didache was this very, very early, I'm talking like first or early second century document that outlines Christian ethical standards and expectations. So when I say first and second century, just so you know, I'm talking about people who likely lived at the same time as the apostles. So this is the church as it's still connected directly to that apostolic line and that group that was directly connected to Jesus himself. So it's not scripture, but it's a really significant picture of what Christians valued from the very beginning. And in just one little section of it, it says this, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not corrupt youth, thou shalt not commit fornication, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not use soothsaying, thou shalt not practice sorcery, thou shalt not kill a child by abortion, neither shalt thou slay it when it's born. Thou shalt not covet the goods of thy neighbor, and on and on and on. And you can see here, at a huge variety of levels, the value of human life that Christians considered to be fundamental to what they believe. It says, thou shalt not kill a child by abortion. It's a really unique phrase in Greek. It's, it's literally, thou shalt not kill a child with destruction. And in the first century Roman world, that was a Greek euphemism that meant killing a child before it was born. And so as one interesting side note, especially amid what's going on lately, which by the way, we planned the sermon long before that, right? But incidentally, this re reveals to us that like the stuff we're still struggling with and, and wrestling with now is not new. It's not like a modern problem for the church to address and understand. They were addressing it 2,000 years ago at the very, very beginning. But what he says next, or what it says next, rather, is even more interesting and kind of jumps out at most modern people. It says, neither shalt thou slay it when born. That one, most of us are like, doesn't that like go without saying? You have to say that you're not going to slay a child after it's been born? And the truth is, the tragic truth of the first century Greco-Roman world is that that absolutely did not remotely go without saying. It was not assumed that you would not slay a child after it was born. Let me show you this one example. This is from even longer ago. This is from 1 BC. It's an incredible fragment of a letter that we found from a Roman soldier. Oh, we didn't find it. I was not part of the archaeological. That's like when people who are watching sports are like, we won! He didn't win, and I was not a part of finding this document. It's an incredible archaeological discovery, though. It's a fragment of a letter from a Roman soldier to his wife in 1 BC. And he says this, know that I am still in Alexandria, and do not worry if they wholly set out. I am staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child. His wife's pregnant. And if I receive my pay soon, I will send it up to you. Above all, if you bear a child and it is male, let it be. If it is female, cast it out. This idea of casting it out is literally about leaving it out. Because the idea was that if you did not want to keep that child after it was born, for whatever reason, sometimes it's because it was sick or sickly or disfigured, sometimes it was because it was female, like in this case, for any number of reasons, 
you would leave it out to die of exposure. It's a normal practice. Normal enough that this guy just like lists it as part of like his to-do list for his wife. Hey, I'm going to send a check. Don't worry, I'm still in Alexandria. By the way, if the child's a girl, leave it outside. It's horrible. It was so widespread that we have like documents. Um, there's a document from 8th century BC, so 800 years before this, where there's a king who writes something like, you know, if you want to be truly morally upright, make sure you don't kill a child after they're three. Like that's the, that's the bar. Standard is once they hit three, got to let them live. It's very normal, very widespread behavior. But Christians, because Christians believed in the inherent value and worth of every human being made in the image of God. They believed human beings mattered regardless of who they are, but simply on the basis of what they are. And because Christians believed that, they started doing something that in the ancient world was absolutely seen as bizarre. They would go out into the city streets at night when the noise of the city was quiet, and they would listen for the sounds of crying infants. And they would follow those voices to the abandoned babies and bring them in and adopt them into their family. And the world around them, again, did not value the weak and vulnerable, so they weren't like, oh, wow, look how cool what the Christians are doing. They thought it was bizarre. At the highest level, it's like, why would you bother, why would you want to split your inheritance with someone else's child? But beyond that, they started spreading rumors that like Christians were taking them in so they could eat them because they were cannibals. We have letters attesting to that, that people believed that. But Christians did it for theological reasons because those babies are human beings made in the image of God. And they didn't just care for brand new babies that were abandoned. They cared for the poor and vulnerable of every category to the point where opponents of Christianity got amazingly frustrated with the kind of things that Christians were doing. This is one of my favorite pieces of a letter. This is from much later, fourth century. So this is the year 300 and something. This is a letter from the Emperor Julian, and he's writing to one of his pagan priests. He sent the pagan priests some money. Emperor Julian is one of the last emperors of Rome. He really, really wanted to kind of reignite paganism. He hated Christianity so much that his nickname is Julian the Apostate. Not a fan of Christianity. But he sent some money to one of his pagan priests, and with it he said this, I order that one-fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests, and the remainder be distributed by us to strangers and beggars. Pretty good so far. You go like, well, why? Because we care about the strangers and beggars? Because they have value and worth to us? No, this is why. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, by which he means Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. In other words, the simple way to say that is Julian says, I'm sending you some money to give to the poor because the Christians are embarrassing us. Because they don't just care for their own poor, they care for our poor as well, meaning the pagan poor. Because Christians have always valued the lives of every single person created by God because they're made in his image and they have inherent worth and value and dignity. And that carries on to today. Christians have this ripple effect of because you care about all of humanity and believe that all of humanity has this inherent dignity and worth, that means you extend that care and that love and that service to the unborn, to the orphan, to the widow, to the sick, to the elderly. You could add to this to the, the lonely, to the miserable, to the addicted. Anyone who is normally the very people who are oppressed by power, Christians use whatever power they have to serve them. And that's still the case today. It's why at South Valley we say we are gospel-centered and mission-focused, because we believe that this matters. 
And it's led us to devote tremendous resources, both in terms of people and volunteers and in terms of finances, to caring for all of these categories and many others. It's why we do things like supporting informed choices in Hollister Pregnancy Center, two different life-affirming crisis pregnancy centers that care not just for the unborn babies, but also for the mothers who are in positions of crisis. It's why all around the world, in many different developing countries, we do things like support orphanages and hospitals and primary schools and the, the fighting against human trafficking that's happening in the Dominican Republic and feeding programs for the elderly and the infirm and many, many other things that our partners are doing. Amazing, heroic work that our friends in all those countries do. And we try to do similar stuff here, caring for the poor and needy in our own community various times throughout the year and regularly. It's also why we do things like having microsites where we take church services and, and gospel presentations to places like, uh, like senior assisted living care facilities where folks who would like to come to church can't make it to us. There's actually one that happened earlier today at Wheeler Manor across town where one of our elders went and preached a sermon for some of the folks there who can't make it here. It's also why we have ongoing support groups for people struggling with addiction, bereavement and grief and loss, and a ton of other different personal needs. And we do all of this stuff, not for any kind of pragmatic reason, not for any kind of political reason, but first and foremost for theological reasons. Because we believe that every single human being has dignity and worth, and we believe that God has called Christians to use whatever power and influence they have to serve the least of these in following the example of Jesus. And so just as a side note here, but an important one, in the kind of oncoming storm of controversy and accusation that has already started as of last week and that is going to continue, I would encourage every single person in the room right now, whether you are a Christian or not, please, please do not be tempted to buy into the lie that says that Christians only care about human beings before they're born. It's just not true. Some people say it because they don't know better. Some people say it because they're being intentionally slanderous. But I promise you, it's a false narrative. For 2,000 years, Christians have been the first to arrive and the last to leave when it comes to caring for their vulnerable neighbors at every stage of life. And we will continue to do that until Jesus comes again. So please don't believe that when you hear it. It's not true. And again, it's, it's for us a deeply theological reason behind that. And there are many, many ways for every single person in the room to be involved in, in using your power in that upside-down way that Jesus talks about. The specific one that I want to spend a few minutes talking about today, um, not because it's better than all of the other ones or something, but because it's something that we realize a lot of you have, have no awareness of that it's going on at our church. It's a partnership we've had for a number of years, and we want to make sure you know that it's happening, and we want to make sure you are invited to participate in it talking about a partnership we have with an organization called Foster the City. Foster the City, at the simplest level, is a coalition of churches all around California and now even up in Nevada committed to ending the foster care crisis in their city. It was birthed out of the realization that the founders had that in most counties, there's a waiting list of children who need a foster home to go into. And when those children sit on that waiting list and don't have a place to go, they often end up spending inordinate amounts of time in holding facilities that they're only supposed to be in for 24 hours. And then if too much time passes, they end up being sent out of their county to a completely different county in a completely different city, which makes their already incredibly difficult situation even worse. And so the founders took a look at that list and realized that in many counties, if not most counties, at least in the Bay Area, the number of children waiting for homes was usually lower than the number of churches registered in that county. 
And they said at the simplest level, if some of these churches, if, if a bunch of these churches could raise up foster families and then support those foster families to make them successful, we would see an end, an actual end to the foster care crisis. We'd see a waiting list of loving Christian families instead of a waiting list of children. And so they started doing that. And the reason why it's so important for the church to step into this and the reason why Foster the Bay began, Foster the City, it used to be called Foster the Bay, the reason why Foster the City began is because they looked at the kind of statistics that are associated with children who come up through foster care, especially children who go all the way through foster care and then age out of foster care without ever becoming adopted. And they realized that there is just a, a freight train of horrible statistical outcomes that face those kids. They're our most vulnerable neighbors. I'm going to share some of those statistics with you. The numbers are small. I apologize, but I'll read them to you. Um, and just a warning up front, every time I show these, because uh, I, I do some speaking for Foster the City, and I always say that these can be staggering to hear for the first time if you're not aware of them before, but there's good news coming, I promise. The first that you see on the top left there is that less than 3% of foster youth will ever earn a college degree. So it's just an incredible negative outcome in education. And part of that, by the way, is because every time a child switches school districts or switches schools, they lose an average of six months of educational progress. And 25% of kids in foster care switch schools four or more times. The second one there says that 71% of girls who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant by the time they're 21. 50% of children who age out of the foster care system will develop a substance dependence. 50% will be unemployed by the time they're 24. 33 will be homeless when they age out. And that one in the bottom middle is particularly painful. There is an FBI human trafficking raid that happened back in 2013. And the, the raid, thank God, rescued hundreds and hundreds of children. But what they found is of those children who were involved in human trafficking, 60% of them were children from the foster care system, which is a horrific overrepresentation of a tiny, tiny fraction of our population. There's a couple that aren't listed on here. 70% um, of California prison inmates spent time in the foster care system. And then the one that for me just for some reason hits, hits me the hardest is that foster youth are twice as likely, twice as likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder than U.S. veterans who saw combat. So when kids are put in this situation, they are vulnerable beyond belief. And there's a caveat I always want to give at this point, which is that if you are a foster parent or if you are in the room and you are a child in the foster care system, know that these numbers are not immutable for you that God may be, and I believe is, working in your life or working through your life to change these numbers so that they're not like this for you. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to step alongside you and help you with, to see this go differently for you. And so Foster the City developed this incredibly simple and straightforward strategy. They said the church has to step into this. And so what they do is they call churches to join, and then they ask churches to try to raise up foster families. When those foster families come forward, when folks say, hey, we want to take the step of maybe becoming a foster family, Foster the City will hold that family's hand the entire way through the process because it's a very difficult process in its own right. And then once those foster families are in place, they give the church this very simple strategy for surrounding that family. And here's how it works. You can see in the picture, each foster family is surrounded by four support friends, which could be individuals or families, and those support friends commit to helping in one or two tangible ways per month. That's it. So that could be from bringing them a meal 
picking up their groceries, babysitting their kids, doing their yard work. It's incredibly flexible. It depends on kind of what your resources and what your gifting are. But the point is it puts a tangible structure around the kind of good intentions that we always have to help each other. I mean, how many times has someone told you, just call me if you need anything when you're going through something hard? And how many times do you like actually pick up the phone and call that person? There's nothing wrong with that. People mean it. People are being sincere. The problem is it just doesn't work. If we just say, hey, I know, I know you're, you're, you're starting this foster care journey. Call me if you need anything. They're just not going to call you. My favorite example of that, by the way, is when people say like, oh, you could use our pool anytime. <laughs> like, what? All right, I'm coming at 2 a.m. with all my kids. <laughs> you said anytime and your pool is warm. So this just takes those good intentions that people sincerely have and says, no, we're putting structure on it so that the foster parents don't have to call you. They just know you're coming on Tuesday with a hot meal. See how that works? And the amazing thing is it's already become demonstrably successful. I mean, like, there's, there's this thing in the foster care world called one and dones because there's more than 50% of foster parents who will only ever do one placement because it's difficult. But we're already finding that foster the city families are much, much more statistically probable to take multiple placements in a row. And they over and over again cite the fact that it's because of the support they get from their community. So we want to see that happen. And it's actually been happening here at South Valley Community Church for a long time. We have a number of foster families in our congregation. We have a ton of support friends in our congregation. And we want to see more of that happen. Because here's the most encouraging thing. Here's the best news. The best news of all is that this is actually working. I mean, we, when we joined Foster the City in 2015, we were the sixth church to join. And look at these numbers that are current right now. Now there are 192 partner churches from six when we joined to 192. And they're not just in the Bay Area, they're all the way down into Southern California and up into Nevada. There's 268 foster families that have gone all the way through the licensing process through Foster the City. There's 799 support friends. There will be more than 800 after today, I hope. And the best number of all is that one second from the right, that there are 477 children who have been placed in loving homes. Right? And here's the coolest thing. Once you see how the model works, you see those kids aren't just being placed in a home, they're actually being brought into a church community that will surround them and love them and care for them. And so our ask today is really simple. We just wanna ask every single person in the room to become foster parents. No, I'm just kidding, that's not what we wanna, that's not what we wanna ask. We wanna ask everybody in the room to, to prayerfully consider how might God be calling you to become involved in this world of foster care? We believe it's incredibly important. It shelters our vulnerable neighbors and it also prevents all of those horrible statistical outcomes from ever happening when we step in in that moment. And so there are some of you in the room who God may be calling to foster care. God may be saying, hey, this is what I've been tugging at you for a while about. For some of you, it might be, hey, that's not something we can do right now, but we can absolutely step in and be support friends for some of these families. And the good news is, no matter what level of interest you have, your next step is exactly the same. There is a table under the tent outside. Liz is out there and she's got next step cards that you can fill out. And all that will do is trigger Foster the City to send you an email letting you know about some upcoming interest meetings. Those interest meetings are completely without any sort of obligation. So if, you're, if you wanna learn more about any of those roles, that's the next step for you. And we would love to see more and more families step into this. And our, our pledge to you as South Valley Community Church is that if you take that journey of becoming a foster family, we will be with you. We will. Tell us you're doing it. Tell us you want our help. And we have your back. We promise. All right. So in closing, 
It's a beautiful truth, even though it's a, there's, there's some pain in that message. It's a beautiful truth that when Christians understand the call to use Christian power in this unique way, when we understand that, it changes the world. It already has and it continues to. People who are hungry get food. People who are thirsty get water. People who are lonely get friends. Children get placed into homes that love them and care for them. Families that are in the midst of the other side of the foster care situation get the opportunity for restoration. See that happen over and over again too. And so when Christians understand that their power is not meant to be lorded over others, but meant to be used in service of others to lift them up, these are the kind of things that happen. Lives are changed and communities are transformed. And so we all want to take this seriously, root out those false uses of power that we all have in our lives, and ask God to show us how to use our power to lift up others. And we have at our forefront this incredible example of what that looks like. Jesus said in the passage we read, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the thing, last thing I want to tell you guys. In a sermon like the sermon you heard today, and especially on a day like today, I know that the room is full of people who feel pangs of guilt about misuses of power in your past. Misuses of power against you, misuses of power that you have done. And I want you to know that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many in order to give you the open arms of welcome into his family, of forgiveness, of freedom and restoration, of a path forward, that you don't live in guilt and shame forever, but you give that to Jesus and he heals you. And so we're going to have prayer counselors at the front after church. And if today you just say, hey, man, today I just need, I need prayer. Please come. Let us pray for you. And please know that in the service of Jesus, in his willingness to lower himself to the absolute lowest possible level, to give up all power, the one who had all power, literally, to give it up in order to serve, in order to lift up the broken, in order to lift up sinners, that that power is available for you today to wash you clean, to welcome you into the family of God. The Bible says over and over again that we're all adopted sons and daughters and heirs of God in Christ. So would you stand with me as we remember together the ultimate act of Christian power in the death of Jesus at the cross? On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this and remember that our sins are forgiven because of his finished work at the cross. Lord, I thank you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see the true story of God himself giving up his power in order to be killed willingly on our behalf, to suffer in ways he did not deserve to suffer so that we might be forgiven and welcomed into your family. Thank you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of us receive not the crossed arms of judgment, but the open 
arms of welcome from you. Pray that every person in the room would recognize that they are members of the family of God if they put their trust in your son. Let that be the defining thing about us and may our church be a church that seeks to use every ounce of power you have given us in order to lift up the vulnerable and preach the gospel and transform this world in the way that you have called us to. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.